All right, I just want to say thank you guys um, for coming. We're uh, talking about the story of Israel. I just want to give you kind of the direction of where we're going, kind of the goal as we're talking about Israel. It's really not the story of Israel. It's actually the story of God. Um, but um, as I'm trying to think of how do I tell the story of God without going everywhere across the whole world and, um, and without and trying to keep it focused, um, and that's why I thought, well, you just got to look at Israel. If you just keep on hanging on to Israel, hanging on to Israel, hanging on to Israel, you can travel with Israel all the way through time. And when you travel with Israel through time, you're going to see the story um, of God unfold and the story of God take place. So the goal as we're looking into the story of Israel is that you'll be able to look at the Bible and you get to see the whole picture. That's the goal, to see the entire picture of God's work with mankind, how he works with mankind, how he loves mankind, how he understands mankind, the grace that he gives mankind, the love that he gives mankind, all the way through, just look at the entire Bible, prayerfully you'd be able to go, oh my goodness, I understand now how everything's functioned. So we're going very rapidly as we're getting through things, but we're also kind of, you'll see that we're kind of anchoring into hot spots. And uh, like last week I talked about, well, here's a schedule. Well, I'm still way off of the schedule in regards, so I didn't even talk about Jacob. And then today I'm even going to talk a little bit more about Abraham because it's so hard to get off of Abraham. <laughs> when you start talking about Israel, it's just hard to remove yourself from Abraham. Um, but, uh, so we'll talk a little bit um, more about Abraham as well. But then we'll move into Jacob, and then we'll move into the story of Joseph as we're walking through trying to get um, an understanding of God's um, hand on Israel and how Israel um, has developed. So let's just travel back, even back before Abraham. If we go back before Abraham, we see this map here. Let's go clear back to um, the ark, Noah's ark. You know, when Noah's ark took place, how many people were on the earth? <laughs> Not very many. In fact, whoever was on the ark took place. Well, Noah had three sons. He had Japheth, Shem, and Ham. So when he had these three sons, what happened? Their job was to do what? Populate the earth. Um, so we see a fast story of Noah's Ark, and then we see the Tower of Babel. And when we see the Tower of Babel, people are trying to say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to unite together, and we're going to build, climb to heaven by building this tower. And as they're building this tower, God's saying, absolutely not. I am the one that you're looking for. You're not building it to heaven. So what takes place is that he confuses their language, and he sends them throughout the earth. So as you're looking at throughout the earth, you see... Japheth, Shem, and Ham, or actually Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, this is where they were sent originally after it takes place. These were, they kind of found their locations and kind of found their start. So here's a different map that gives us, if you look in the, the green or the purple, you'll see Shem. So here's Shem. Now these are Abraham's descendants right here. And then you see Ham. Ham's descendants are orange. I believe that is correct. So Ham's descendants are orange that has taken place here. And they see Japheth's descendants that are right here. So when they scattered around the earth, this is where their descendants scattered. Now, where is Israel? Israel is right there, correct? Well, do you see what takes place? You hear this, hey, we're going to the land of Canaan when you read the story of Moses. Well, what's, what's taking place? Who's the land of Canaan? Is it just one guy? Is it one father? I mean, who is this land of Canaan? Just can you give you an example. Let's look at First Chronicles uh, one eight says the sons of Ham, Cush, Mazarim, put into Canaan. But then what took place? Canaan was the father of Sidon, the firstborn, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, 
and the Archaeites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Now, this is First uh, Chronicles that all of us skip when we read by, through the Bible, because there's a whole bunch of like what genealogies that go all the way through from Chronicles one, First Chronicles one to six. It's like, whoo! I like to get there because I can get ahead of my Bible reading, and uh, as we do this, but. What's taken place is um, Canaan, you see Canaan was the father of Sidon, that's firstborn, and then all of a sudden their generation started taking the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, these are the nations that were possessed, uh, possessing um, Israel. And this is what was taking place through the story. So that, when you hear the word Canaan, well it comes from, you know, the father, Canaan, which is a father and then his descendants that came after him, and that is who occupied the land. Somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, when Abraham came there, Abraham came to Canaan, there's occupation in the land. People occupied the land. Yes, they occupied the land. Um, and Canaanites were the ones, ones that are there, and that's what they consistently call them. So when God gives Abraham this journey from Ur and says, I want you just to follow me, and I want you to go to land that is going to be, I just say the words that Moses says, filling uh, with milk and honey. I want to give you this land. Well, look at where Israel is at. Israel is right in the center, what, of all the divisions of where it took place. And remember that Abraham did not have Google Earth to figure this out. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to a land. Well, who occupies the land? Who is in the land? Is the land going to be hard to occupy? It's just a simple statement. Just go and trust me. That was what the statement was. But now as we can look at this, oh my goodness, there's going to be complications with him getting into the land. Is that correct? Yes, there's major complications of him getting into the land. And I will tell you that Abraham felt it. So I want to just look at this story from Abraham. Genesis 15, um, Abraham says, you know, I'll, just, I'll read what he says and then we'll walk through it. And I will say that if you want to read a golden jewel in Scripture, read Genesis 15. Because I will tell you that everything changes after this verse. It is one of the most powerful verses, chapters in Scripture. Let's just read it. He, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to, to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain the possession of it? I mean, if we can see Google Earth right now, it looks pretty thick. Abraham's feeling that too. You want me to go, but how will I know if you gain possession of it? And then something amazing takes place. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, and three, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now look at that and say, what's so cool about that? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram. We don't know what they're talking about, but Abraham knew exactly what he was talking about. See, when you're looking at a, a verbal language um, instead of a written language, you need to make a covenant. And God was going to make a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant, this is what the covenant would look like. The covenant would like, you take a heifer, you take a goat, and you take a ram. And I'll tell you what you're going to do to them is you're going to cut them right in half. Split them in half. Split their bodies in half. And when you pull the bodies in half, what's going to take place? Blood. Guts. Goo. Disgusting. All is going to land on the ground. And you have both of these bodies, all these bodies split in place. And then you have the dove and the pigeon. What's the dove and the pigeon for? The dove and the pigeon show up to, what, piece off of these bodies. So what you're doing is you're going to make a covenant in the old days. This is how you do it. You take it, you split them in half, you pull them through, and then what happens is that you walk through 
the split pieces. And when you're walking through the split pieces, you're making a statement. And you know what the statement is? May this happen to me. Split in half. May this happen to me and let the birds eat me if I do not keep my covenant with you. You see what happens, um, kings, when they take over somebody else, they usually kill everybody. But if they don't kill everybody, they take a heifer, they take a goat, they take a ram, and they split them in half and says, all right, you walk through it. This is a verbal covenant. You walk through it. And by you walking through it, I will tell you what's going to take place is if you break it whatsoever, you know that this is going to happen to you. If you break it even to a, uh, uh, even to a minute thing, this is what's going to happen to you. So here's the verbal statement. Abraham sees it. He accepts it. Of course. I'm scared to go in the land. God's going to make a covenant with me. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to split the goat, and I'm going to split the heifer, and I'm going to split the ram. I'm going to walk through it. And if I am not going to follow God to a T, he's going to kill me. That's what's going on in Abraham's mind. But watch what takes place. I just want to show you another passage in Jeremiah 34, 18. It says, the men who violated my covenant, just shows you this covenant, covenant have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will treat them like the calf they cut in two and then walk between the pieces. This is making display of what Abraham is doing in front of God. So he sets it up, and after he sets it up, the most radical thing ever happens in Scripture where every single religion goes two different directions. And the most radical thing takes place Genesis 15, 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So what happens is he split them all. As he split them all, he's ready to walk into it, but all of a sudden he can't walk into it. And why can't he walk into it? Because he's fallen into this deep sleep. It's almost like a, a drunk sleep that takes place where he is alert, but yet cannot move. Yet he is alert and he can see and he can observe but he can not have any mobility whatsoever. And then what happens? When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared at the base between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, what, 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 is, what is this talking about? Let's look at it. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch in Hebrew, these are the Greek, the same Hebrew words, not the Greek, the same Hebrew words that describe what's taking place at Mount Sinai. In other words, it's not just a torch that carries a fire. It's more like a, a, a lightning streak that takes place. A hot, flaming torch all of a sudden appears. So if you get this picture, all of a sudden Abraham sits back, and all of a sudden this flaming torch, the Shekinah glory is what is represented. This flaming torch sits in front of him as Abraham is in complete daze. Now, he says a whole bunch of things in that passage. You go back and read it because you'll see a lot of rich, rich things in that passage. But I'm just trying to make the point here. As Abraham sits back, he sees a flaming torch. And what does that flaming torch do? I want to go back to this slide. The flaming torch appeared and what? Passed between the pieces. Now, what's going on here? If that flaming torch is just Shekinah glory, he just put Abraham back into a deep sleep and the Shekinah glory, then walk through the pieces. I will tell you something, no king walks through the pieces. If you conquer a land, you conquer a nation, and this takes place, you walk through, but the king doesn't walk through. Here, God, Abraham's making a covenant with God. Abraham falls back and sudden God walks through. What's he making a statement of God when he walks through? He's making a statement 
that if I don't keep my covenant with you, Abraham, this is, this is going to be radical. If I don't make my covenant with you, may I be treated like the goat, the ram, and the heifer. That's the statement that has taken place. God, may he be treated if he does not keep his covenant with you. And Abraham is sitting there observing it. The most radical thing that has happened in Scripture, in a sense, I'm making a covenant, and I will walk through that if it breaks, I, this is God saying, I will be held accountable. But that's not the most amazing thing that took place. Look at the verse and see what else took place. Between the pieces, after the Shekinah glory went through, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Guess who did not walk through the pieces? Abraham didn't walk through the pieces. So what happens is that God walks through the pieces. That If I do not keep that covenant with you, may I be cut to pieces. And the statement is, Abraham, if you don't keep the covenant with, you, with me, I will still be cut to pieces instead of you. You see how powerful that statement is? And the powerful statement is at the cross. This is just pointing completely to the direction of the cross, saying that you're not going to keep it, and I know you're not going to keep it. I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to pay it all. And this is what the picture is given to Abraham. It's a picture of God's story that says, I am in charge, period, and I will do all the work, all the dying, all the saving, and I will take care of you as you go for the pieces um, of this land. Now, I will tell you that I mentioned last week is that three people hold on to Abraham. Who are, the three, who are the three religions that hold on to Abraham? Christianity, we say Abraham's ours. We're a father of many nations, and we see that Abraham walked through the Old Testament and set the foundation. As he set the foundation, Jesus comes in the New Testament. Abraham's ours. When we read the Bible, we're like, ah, yeah, Abraham's ours, but who else does? Jews say that as well. The Jews say, yeah, Abraham is ours, and we're still waiting for this Messiah, but where does the Jews go different than Christians? The Jews go different than Christians because there's not a God that would walk through pieces like that, and they would interpret it completely different. God does not die. We can look at religions and say, those are radical religions out there. Actually, you know what? We're the most radical religion out there. And the reason we're the most radical religion out there is because why would God do something like this to Abraham? The other religion is what? Muslims. Muslims hold on to Abraham as well. Abraham is ours, and our descendants is Ishmael. They'll hold on to that story. But boy, they re- this is going a complete different direction than what they're teaching. It's going the opposite direction, that God dies. You know, we're in a world where we say, well, we can mix all these different religions. Well, how do you mix a religion if there's such a radical statement that God dies, God rose, God lives? You see, he's building the base and the foundation to set Scripture on fire as they're looking towards the coming of the Messiah. So when you see this take place in Abraham's life, he's just setting the foundation. Who's in charge of this covenant? Who's going to do this covenant? Who's going to make this covenant happen? It's going to be me. It's not a story about Israel. It's a story about God. So let's continue to rush through the story. as looking at time. What took place? If you're going to have a son, or if you're going to have a father of many nations, you've got to have a son. Uh, what happened with Sarah? She was what? Barren. Okay, She was Abraham's wife. She was barren. But all of a sudden, 
They had to have faith, and they have one. Well, let's look at Isaac. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren as well. Um, you're going to see this all the way through the Bible. A lot of barren women, and do you know what? The barren woman is working right towards, <laughs> right towards the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Abraham's wife is barren. Isaac's wife is barren. But what takes place? She has a commitment. The Lord said there are two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, where are these children at? They're in the, they're in the stomach. Um, when, Jesus is ta- or when God is talking, what's he ta- saying? You've got two nations, they're in your stomach, and let me tell you how it's going to work. The older will serve the younger. That's not the way it works. The o- older is, the younger is supposed to serve the older. That's the way it's supposed to work. But all of a sudden, God, before it even takes place, he says, I just want you to know in charge, I'm doing it different. The older will serve, the younger. Nobody is in charge but me, and nothing has ever happened, but I will write my story in regards to, on mankind. And then we see this in Romans. Paul mentioned it. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one of the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were even born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God is what? Saying, I am writing the story, and in the story you will see me. We want to argue with that. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on a man's desire or on his effort, but on God's mercy of what's taking place. Well, what's happening here is God's saying, I'm going to write my story for the purpose of people seeing my amazing grace. So let's just continue on the story as we're looking at this amazing grace and we're observing God on the story. Two sons were born. They were Esau and Jacob. Now Esau was a hunter and Jacob was, was a farmer. She's more of a, a mother's child. <laughs> we'll put it that way. In fact, I want to describe more as a mother's child than even that. Uh, he was a mother's child. In other words, rough, strong, gruff was Esau and kind of a weeny, puny person was Jacob. Mommy's boy, Rebecca's boy. Well, Jacob wanted something. He wanted God. He wanted the line of the seed. He knew Abraham's promise. He knew Isaac's promise, and he wanted that. And one day Isaac, or Esau comes home from hunting. As he comes home from hunting, he sits down and says, hey, Jacob, give me a cup of soup. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> Jacob says, well, this is prime opportunity. Well, Esau, how about if you give me your birthright, and then I'll go get you a cup of soup. And Esau's coming, well, birthright, it's not going to happen when I'm long gone anyway, it's not that big of a deal, so what does he do? Sure, give me a cup of soup and I'll give you my birthright. Just words that we're saying. Remember, God already foreordained it, but this is words, I don't give a rip about this birthright. Go ahead and Jacob and you can take uh, this birthright. And then what happened right there? Was there a blessing that happened right there? Oh, we just see the hand of God of somebody that wants God's blessing, desires God's blessing, and somebody that really doesn't. And Jacob is responding aggressively to receive it. But as he's responding aggressively to see it, I will tell, receive it. He tell you there's a lot of manipulation and there's a lot of deceit. And we can see this manipulation and deceit, even in Rebekah, his mother. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on the younger son, Jacob. Said, Jacob, let's go get this birthright. But if you go in there before you receive the blessing from Isaac, 
um, you're not going to be able to get it. You've got to get in there. And Jacob's like, well, if I go in there, he's going to know that it's Esau. Why? Because Esau's a hairy guy, furry guy, rough guy, tough guy. And he will know. And Rebecca says, well, let me manipulate it a little bit. Let's put, some, let's put some goat skin on you. And as you go in there, they'll feel it. And they go, oh, this is my Esau. And sure enough, they do. What happens? He went to his father because he's going to receive this blessing. My father, my son, he answered, who is it? And he just comes out with a lie. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please. I don't have all the screen. Please something it up and eat some. <laughs> I, don't, I only have half the screen. Maybe I should look up here. Is this it? What's under Esau? See, I'm working off this screen. We're seeing if this works because I'm not used to this. Um, I have done to you. Please sit up. There you go. Okay. It's missing the S. That's what it is. Sit up and eat some of my game so that when you may, uh, so I may give a blessing to you. So sure enough, Isaac then gives him a blessing. Then Esau comes back after he gives a blessing. And Esau is like furious, mad, completely angry. And why is he angry? Because the blessing was then stolen from him. But even before the blessing was stolen to him, it was ordained. It was given because that manipulation takes there. And then it was manipulated, but you see what happens is God almost is, I'm not even going to say almost, God is saying, who's hungry for me? Because this is a salvation message. Who is hungry for me? And those who are hungry for me, because remember he set the foundation of the Bible, those who are hungry for me, who are starving for me, those are the people that I want to take and I want to bless. Those are the people that I want to hang on to. And we can just see God's personality in regards to even what has taken place here. And we can get really angry and frustrated about the manipulation, but you also have to remember there is really no law in place, and I'm going to say that the manipulation is wrong, is incomplete, but there is a God that still continues to work even through the filth and the garbage of all of us. Continues to work, and we get to see that. He was also, Jacob was not only done with God there, he was also traveling to Ur, and when he was traveling, uh, no, Haran, when he was traveling to Haran, he met a person. When he met this person, he started wrestling with this person. And what was his passion? What was his drive? The same drive that he had with Rebecca. I've got to take this blessing. I want to be blessed by God. It was a hunger. Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Well, who is this person? A lot of scholars say that, you know, it's probably Jesus because it's talked about, described even as a man. Some scholars would say that. But in Hosea, calls it an angel. Um, but what, is, what does Jacob call it? He's saying, I want a blessing from you. I demand it. And look at what happens. Oh. Whoa. I missed the passage. It's the most, most, most important passage in the Bible. I mean, in regards to Israel. He says, I'll give you the blessing. What happens is that he wrestles with him all night, and after he wrestles with him all night, he takes out his hip. And then after he takes out his hip, this blessing comes from God, whether it was Jesus, whether it was an angel, or whether it was God himself, it comes from God and said, today you will be called what? Israel. Today you will be called Israel. Jacob just got everything he was hungry for, everything he wanted. He got God's commitment on his shoulders that says the line of the Messiah, the line of God, the bloodline of God will then go through you. So the things he was starved before, he got and uh, when he got it, what took place? He had 12 sons. He had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, Ashar, Ishkar, Ishkar, 
uh, Zebulon, Joseph, and he had Benjamin. He had 12 sons that take place. Now, I'm just going to skip really fast because I want to get this story, and we have a lot of information still to give. So, skipping really fast, in Joshua, Joshua's going to conquer the land. This is after Moses. When he conquers the land, what's going to happen to Israel? Israel's going to be divided. And the way that Israel's going to be divided is in what? Oh, my goodness, we see the people. We see Nephetali, we see um, Benjamin, we see Judah, we see Simeon, we see Reuben, we see Gad, we see all these people that are taking place. Well, all those lands are actually separated into the various nations of Israel. But where's, where's Joseph? I see Benjamin right here, but where's Joseph? Is he, a, is he one of the tribes? He's actually not one of the tribes, and the reason why he's not one of the tribes is because he had two sons that Jacob adopted. He adopted Manasseh and he adopted Ephraim, and sometimes you'll see Ephraim being located as this is Joseph, as, the, as one of the tribes of Israel. But Manasseh and Ephraim are Joseph's, are Joseph's claims. When you see those two, that is Joseph's claim because that is, that is specifically, uh, specifically his, his children. So here is Israel, but going to go really fast again. Is Israel done? Revelation 7, 4 says, Then I heard a number of those who were sealed, 44,000 from all the tribes of Israel. We're not talking about the tribulation. I'm just going to tell you that what Jacob does as he establishes Israel, it lasts all the way to the future, and this is through the tribulation. From the tribe of Judah, there was 12,000 that were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, there was 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, there was 12,000. Ashar, and you will see all those things take place. Every one of them inside the tribulation were sealed with what? A covenant called the hand of, of God. I will make sure that Israel is mine. I also want you to see Revelation 21. This is when the great Jerusalem comes down. We can just call it heaven. Heaven on earth where God is in control. The new Jerusalem comes down. It had a great high wall and 12 gates. And with the 12 angels at the gate, on the gates were written the same names of the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus, or when God made a commitment to Abraham that it's my people, it's my work, it's my job, he is saying, I am specifically committed to you. So do we get the personality of God when we look at these biblical stories? Yes, we're getting the personality of God. And there's a commitment. Let's walk through this one son called Joseph. Joseph, or um, Genesis 37, starts to tell a story about Joseph. Now Joseph was a person that Jacob looked at and says, the blood of the Messiah will go through him. Look at, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a very, uh, a very colored tunic. A various colored tunic. And what does a various colored tunic look like? Looks like that. What was this tunic saying? Now I'm going to tell you the story of Joseph. And as I tell you the story of Joseph, I want you to watch something that goes all the way through his life. I want you to watch his clothes. <laughs> Just watch his clothes. What does that look like? Looks like a rainbow. <laughs> Where else do we see this thing take place? thing takes place. I am going to make a promise that I will never flood the earth again, specifically from God. What is this statement of putting this colored tunic on? The statement of putting this colored tunic on is specifically given to Joseph to say, you are the special one. You are the promised child that I have been given this blessing, and through that blessing, it is going to go through your line and none of my other sons. It is going to go through your line. And this tunic was placed on it. Of course, as this tunic was placed on him, there's 11 other brothers. It's like hmm, 10 of them that really got jealous. Benjamin did not get jealous. But 10 other brothers got really jealous. 
And when they said, why is Jacob promising this to Joseph and not to us? Well, just to enhance their jealousy a little bit, uh, Joseph had a couple dreams. And when he had these dreams, I'm just going to go really fast, not get specific in the dreams, but the dreams were that his ten brothers did what? Bowed to him. So you have jealous brothers, and you're wearing this tunic that says, I am the promised son, and then you start going and telling your brothers, hey, guess what? Uh, One day you're going to bow to me. What are those ten brothers going to do? Oh, thank you for giving us that information. That's good information. I can't wait forward to the day that you do that. No, it brings angst, it brings frustration, it brings jealousy is what took place. Well, then he had another dream, and in this other dream, I mean, he's kind of a blabbermouth, but he had another dream, is that Jacob was actually going to bow to him. And if if I had a dream that my father was going to bow to me, I wouldn't tell him. (laughs) But Joseph told him, and when Joseph told him, what does Jacob do? He does the same thing his brothers do, you know, don't get arrogant, don't get cocky, I'm not bowing towards you. So he's carrying this robe of promise, and as he's carrying this robe of, I'm the promised one, he's having dreams saying, I really am the promised one, and all of a sudden there's frustration that has taken place. So much frustration that Joseph was out tending sheep, and his ten brothers went out there, and as they went out there, what took place and what happened? They say, let's kill him. And they grabbed him and they threw him into a well. And as they threw him into a well, a cistern of water, which is extremely deep, as they threw him in there, well, there's one brother that says, you can't kill him, don't kill him. I mean, that's, we, can't, we can't do that. He's our brother. So what ended up happening is they see a caravan that's going to Egypt. And when they see this caravan that's going to Egypt, I just want to read it. Oh, no, I don't have that passage in there either. When they see this caravan go to Egypt, they said, instead of killing him, let's sell him. So they ended up selling him to a caravan that was going to Egypt. And I believe it was the Hittites that were going to Egypt. So as they were going to Egypt, Joseph has been given to Egypt, going to be sold. They then did what? Watch the clothes. They took the clothes, and then they what? Killed an animal, dipped it in blood, gave it back to the father. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a goat and dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. You see promised child, but then what do you see? You see dead child. And as Jacob is hanging on to this, he's like, my promise is not being fulfilled. But is his promise still going to be fulfilled? Well, let's just ask this question. He's going to Egypt. Now, where is Egypt we're talking Israel's right here. This all took place here. Egypt is long right here is where it takes place. Let's talk a little bit about Egypt before we um, bring out what is going to take place with Joseph in Egypt. Egypt is what? Right here? Very, very strong country. And is it a strong country? There's only one thing that gives it the strength. Do you know what gives it the strength? The Nile River. The Nile River is the strongest or the longest river in the world. It's actually 3,000 miles of, of river. And it is, I will say, a gnarly, oh, oh my goodness, how'd that get in there? I did, <laughs> I did some other research as I was doing some research, but I would say that it is a, a, a gnarly river that actually brought the life to the Egyptians. In fact, they were very spiritual people. They said the Nile is absolutely even a god. And the reason why they call the Nile the god is because in the mountain ranges of the Nile, there's two rivers that connect. And as these two rivers connect and come off the mountain ranges, every, I would say, spring, it floods. Now, it's not like a normal flood. It is an aggressive flood that as soon as it hits and as soon as that monsoon hits, I will tell you, thick mud 
obscene amount of water floods the Nile. And it takes place every single year, and it floods the complete banks of the Nile. As they're flooding the complete banks of the Nile, what are the Egyptians going to do? They're going to grab a hold of the soil, and the Nile actually even spreads out and gets longer and longer and longer, and then produces crops. And they know when the Nile is coming, so what they're doing, they're getting prepared for for their crops, because they know the water's going to come wash it out, and then after it leaves, then that's when they grow their food. So it's giving them complete, complete life, complete power. So you can see the Nile here, you see how lush it is? You got right clear up here, it's not, you know, it's, it's not lush, but right here, it's like, well, that's just a simple river. But as that river completely floods, it makes it extremely lush. And what are we looking at in the desert? We're looking at irrigation, we're looking at uh, agriculture, we're looking at things that we can, we can live on. So this is what took place. And as this consistently took place, I'll tell you, the Egyptians said, the Nile is God. In fact, they believed that the earth was flat. And as they believed the earth was flat, they believed that mountains circled it. And what happens is when that rain came down, God literally, and this is God, small g, God, literally provided all their needs through the Nile River. In fact, God, I'll just even go into a little bigger, is that God was on a a ship. And as the mountains circled the world, God was on this ship, and when he was on this ship, he would drive down the Nile and bless the Egyptians completely and entirely because the Nile River provided absolutely everything for them. So what took place? People were alongside the Nile all the way through. People would build their, um, build their houses, build their castles. They actually spread out all the way through the Nile. They could not get all the way up the Nile, but they spread all the way through the Nile, and this is where they lived. Now, one thing about the Egyptians is if you read history, is that they're the first ones that um, built the 365-day calendar. Um, so why did they build the calendar? Ask the question. Why did they build a 365-day calendar? Do you know they built the calendar off the Nile? They said that every time the river floods, we've got to control this. And they're still even controlling it now, in a sense that they make sure that you know, the, the caverns are there so we can channel the water in the right directions. Every time it floods, we need to know when it floods because it floods at this certain time. And they ended up building the first calendar is 365 days. And, and how did they do that? Well, they said, we've got to study the moon because what is the moon? The moon is the is the time zone that you can be able to find out what's taking place. So they built the first calendar. They're also the ones, you can go all the way back, because they're very, very educated. They're the ones that, um, um, that scribed languages on stone. In fact, if you want to know the history of Egyptians, it's more clear than anybody else. And the reason why is the first person, that, not first person, but they communicated a language on stone. And the way they communicated on stone is that we're walking with a calendar, we're speaking on a stone, and what are we going to locate our years as? We'll locate our years as the king or the pharaoh that is there, and we'll start marking those years in regards to that. So they started communicating with pictures on stone, with languages on stone. Also, if you look at um, Egypt, they're known for creating the first paper. They're the first ones that ever wrote paper in regards to even a, a scroll. So what did they do? They took a, a stem of a, a, pop, a papyrus reed, and the papyrus reed, they would take it and they'd weave all, all these reeds across, and they'd not only write on stone, but they'd start writing on paper. And this is kind of what a, a, a papyrus reed paper looks like. As a, If you look at the, the, study, uh, the study of it, they would take it, they would cut it, they'd weave it, they'd smash it, and then they'd roll it. And after they rolled it, they would just add to it year after year after year after year, just keep on adding, 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 and they keep on rolling it up, and they have all of a sudden called a, called a, a scroll. 
So these um, Egyptians were people that were extremely smart and um, extremely capable, and they did believe numerously, uh, most of their lives that they were the only ones that were practically on earth that even knew anything. Another thing that they did is they believed that once somebody died, and I'm just telling you about these Egyptians because this is where Joseph is going, they believed that when somebody died that the spirit would then come back to the body and visit the body. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a body rot in a grave. <laughs> I have not. But it's not just the best view that anybody can have. But they believed that if it was going to take place, that you should at least make the body look as good as you possibly can if the spirit's going to come back to the body. So they're the ones that started, well, let's embalm them, remove the blood, and go all the way from removing all the guts. And the reason why is you want the body to look as good as you possibly can for the spirit to return. Because I will tell you that if it's one of your ancestors, your ancestors are looking at how you took care of the body when you put it in the grave. And if you're a king coming back, looking at your body, and your children didn't take care of your body, ooh, they're going to be in trouble by the gods. So they're the ones that started the mummifying people. This guy looks like pretty good. They did pretty good, didn't they? I mean, if I was going to come back and visit that, that would be like, that's okay. <laughs> no, no it's, it's, it's not. But anyway, that was their drive of the spirit world leaving, spirit leaving the body, spirit coming back. And so when you start looking at the pyramids, what were the pyramids? The pyramids, I know that's a scary picture, a spooky picture. I just pulled that one off the internet. But what were the pyramids for? The pyramids were building their tomb because their life was all about their tomb. In fact, when you became a king, what is the first thing you started doing? You started building one layer, which is the first year, two layers, the second year, three layers, which is another year. You start building your pyramid, you start building your tomb even before you die. Because what's going to take place is if you're going to come back and visit your body, it needs to be in something that is going to be strong, something that's going to be good, something that's going to be powerful, something that's going to be beautiful. Because that's what life is all about. So you see the Egyptians are very spiritual people and very passionate people, very smart people, very educated people. And this is where Joseph was going. And as Joseph was going, who was he? He was a slave. He was a nobody. But we see Joseph climb the ladder awfully fast. First climb the ladder was from Potiphar's house. Potiphar's house, guy completely up there in high esteem in Egypt. And as he's up there in high esteem of Egypt, everything got blessed in his house because Joseph was in charge. And what happens? He continued to put Joseph in more charge, more charge, more charge, more charge, more charge. And he had possession of everything, had responsibility over everything that Potiphar had in his entire house, except one thing, Potiphar's wife. That was it. You don't touch his wife. I mean, I'm in charge of everything, but I'm not in charge of his wife. Well, his wife had a problem. She liked Joseph. And she tried to motivate Joseph, pull Joseph into a sexual relationship in regards to her, um, in regards to, to them. And so Joseph does what? He's like, absolutely not. How in the world can I be in charge of everything from your husbands and then me taking advantage of you? So Joseph gets in trouble. Watch how he gets in trouble. Now it happened one day that he was into his house. They went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the household was there. Oh, not a good situation. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment, what are we supposed to be talking about when we talk about Joseph? 
Watch the clothes. Keep an eye on the clothes. When he left his garment in the hand and left it fled outside, she called to the household and said, See, he has brought in the Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed, Watch the garment. When he heard, I raised my voice, and I screamed, and he left the garment beside me and led and fled and went outside. Again, what does this look like? A child, Joseph was a child who pays the price of others. Did Joseph sin? He did not sin. His garment was left as he fled and as he ran. You have the promised child, you have the slain child, and then you have a child that is carrying somebody else's what? Sin. So what takes place? Potiphar really knows what happened. And the reason why Potiphar knows what happened is because he threw Joseph in jail. Well, they don't throw people in jail back in those days. They just cut off their heads. Um, Jail is a holding place before you get your head cut off. But Joseph was there for two years. Why was Joseph there for two years? Because Potiphar, I think, understood his wife. This is what most scholars believe. Understood his wife, understood what took place, and understood that he was guilty. So let's just put you into a holding place until we kill you for two years. Why would you feed somebody for two years before you killed them? So I just want to go very aggressively on this story to get to the end. But what took place is he went into prison. He was there for two years. And somebody showed up, two people showed up, thrown in there, a cupbearer and a baker. And when you had a cupbearer and a baker, they came in for what? To spend two years in there? No, they came in there to either be freed or to get out. Well, as they went in there, I will tell you there's fear being in jail because you're going to get your head cut off or you're going to get free. The cupbearer and the baker had a dream. And in this dream, really quickly, the cupbearer dreamed that he had a vine that was in front of him that had three different branches. And then on those branches, all of a sudden, these vines started to bud. And then grapes, beautiful grapes came alive. And these beautiful grapes came alive. They ended up in the king's cup. Joseph. Anybody know what that dream means? Just as I know what it means. And he explained it. That in three days, you're going to get out and be reinstated to the king's palace. And what does the cupbearer think? Is that true? Is that right? Well, whether it's true or right or not, it happened. Baker also had a dream. As he dreamed, he had three baskets of bread. And and this baked food, the birds kept on eating it out of his head because it was placed on his head. As the birds continued to eat it, the baker says, what does that mean? He says, well, in three days, what's going to take place is you're going to be killed. Your head's going to be removed, and the birds are going to feed off you. Is that true? Well, is exactly what happened. So as it happened, he told the cupbearer, if you go to the king, please tell him to remember me, to pull me out of here and to get me out of jail. Well, you got another two years that took place, and as you look at another two years, because the cupbearer, of course, forgot him, but the king of Egypt says, I had a dream, and I want my dream interpreted, and if people are not going to interpret, I'm going to kill him. And the cupbearer goes, whoa, I remember somebody two years ago that interpreted a dream. His, he was in prison, ready for death or freedom or whatever. I wonder if he's still there. Sure enough, they pulled Joseph out. When they pulled him out, the king, gave, the, um, king of Egypt gave them a dream. And after he gave them the dream, Joseph interpreted the dream. And then what happened? Then Pharaoh took, his, took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And then did what? clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. Watch the clothes. He now promised child, 
dead child with his clothes, and then to what after dead child? He went to what? Ruling child. He went to the ruling child. You see what's taking place? It kind of looks like Jesus a little bit. Jesus does like to show these typologies. Genesis 45, to each of them he gave new clothes. Oh, goodness, I don't want to go there yet. So, looking at my time, I just want to go really fast, is that uh, famine took place in the land. As the famine took place in the land, where did um, everybody travel? As people were, I'm, I'm, I'm going really too fast because I skipped a, a lot. So, as he became the royal palace on his royal clothes, now his royal clothes, he's now in charge of Egypt and all over the entire Egypt next to the Pharaoh. And as he is next to the Pharaoh, he explains to the Pharaoh of the dream, because he explained the dream, that there's going to be a famine in the land, and in that land there's going to be seven years of extreme wealth, and there's going to be seven years of extreme famine. And Joseph says, what you need is you need to find somebody that's going to take care of that wealth so we can survive the famine. And Pharaoh put him in charge said, you're in charge. So what does he do? He manages everything from Pharaoh, puts it all together, and wealthy, wealthy years, seven years, horrific years of famine, everybody started coming down. And as everybody started coming down, who else came down? The ten brothers. And as the ten brothers came down, Jacob says, you've got to go get food. They went down to Egypt, and they did not recognize Joseph whatsoever. But when they first showed up to Joseph, what did they do? They bowed to him. That dream then turns alive. You see God's hand at work through all of it. Turns alive. And Joseph does some tricks, you know, just some tricks of stashing. Well, I'm not even going to go into the details of the story because we do not have time. But I will tell you that he reveals himself. And when he reveals himself, he says, Go get my father Jacob and bring him to where? To Egypt. So Jacob comes to Egypt, and what does he do? To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and fine sets of clothes. It's again all about the clothing. Watch the clothes. Promised child, slain child, child who pays the price for others, royal child, and then redeeming child. See, God wants us to see him in, in all the stories. And he says, I'm going to walk through this line. He does it all the way through the Bible. I'm going to walk through this line this genealogy, these thousands of years, and I walk through this line as a pointing to a direction. And number one is I'm in control, and my child, Jesus Christ, is going to be the Savior. So as we're looking at all these stories that take place, this is what wraps up the story of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about his present result to preserve many people and live. The story is not a story of Israel. The story is a story of specifically God. And when we watch the story of the Old Testament, we can see it God at work in people's lives and how he's functioning inside of people. Well, that's how he responds to me. That's how he works with me. Can I take that verse and take it as my own? All this evil that is done against me, God meant it for good to what? Even provide for other people. God's hand is at work um, in his people. So what happens? Jacob then goes down to Egypt, and then they live happily ever after. <laughs> no, <laughs> they don't. But we'll talk about it again next week. But the challenge is, is that God does walk all the way through our stories. And in the Old Testament, we see his hand 
his hand is just like in our life, just like in their lives as well.